We will continue our study this morning in the Sermon on the Mount. And if you remember the first week, I said that Jesus was going to offend everyone on purpose. And that really starts today. Okay, Um, We have completed the introduction part of the Sermon on the Mount. Today we're going to come to the body of the sermon beginning in Matthew 5. Verse, seven, uh, verse 17, which will be up on the screen. It says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Um, be very difficult for me to overstate the importance of this verse. Jesus has already mentioned in verse 12, the prophets... And he's going to mention the law and the prophets again in chapter 7 near the end of the sermon. And Jesus wants to make it absolutely clear to his audience that his own teaching fits with the teaching of the Old Testament. He's not betraying the Jewish faith. He is bringing fulfillment to it. This is important because the religious leaders repeatedly accused Jesus of rejecting Old Testament law. But Jesus anticipates that criticism and he defends himself. I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Okay, so an iota is the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet. A dot, he's probably referring to the tiny stroke that was used to distinguish between Hebrew letters. And so Jesus is saying unequivocally that God's law still matters. And it will continue to matter until the end of time. Now I want to pause here briefly and I want to address a concern that some of you may have if you're um, more thoughtful about some of these things. If you are familiar with the Old Testament law, then you know that there were many laws in the Old Testament that Christians no longer observe. We no longer keep the ceremonial laws regarding sacrifices and rituals and cleansings um, as they were written. And there were also civil laws and case laws that were given to the nation of Israel that that we don't necessarily keep. And so that is a lengthy discussion that I'm willing to have with anyone who might be interested, but it would take the entire sermon for me to really go into that. So I'm not going to do that this morning, um, but I want you to let me know if that's you and we can talk and I can try to explain my views on that. But right now I want to focus on the intent of Jesus in this sermon in using this statement, okay? Because right now, what Jesus is doing is he's preaching to the choir. You heard that expression? He's saying things that his audience will be excited to hear. This isn't news to them, right? You can imagine the Jewish people just sort of nodding along as a rabbi talks about the importance of the law. You can imagine the religious leaders 
in the audience, grinning from ear to ear, thinking to themselves, okay, yeah, he is one of us. He gets it. Because talking to ancient Jews about the law is like talking to Americans about the Constitution. You're going to get a lot of nods and a lot of applause, even if most people in the room have never actually read it. Because it's their culture. Verse 19. Jesus says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And so now you can imagine some of the normal people in the crowd are getting a little uncomfortable. Because most people know that they've probably, you know, they've they've relaxed some of those laws just a little bit, right? They're a little bit guilty. And so the the normal people in the room are like, okay, I'm not sure, right? But the religious leaders are loving it. They are loving it, right? Not just those who keep, but who teach will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Tell it, Jesus. Preach. Amen. Amen. Because they considered themselves to be the experts in the law and they looked down on everyone else. The hook is set. Verse 20, Jesus continues. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And this is where we could play the sound effect of the tires screeching, right? (laughs) Or the record player scratching. Everyone stops nodding in agreement. Everyone is now uncomfortable, including and especially the religious leaders. Because Jesus just told this crowd... That none of them, none of them are good enough to enter the kingdom of heaven. Not even the best among them. If you remember our study in Samuel, it reminds me of 2 Samuel 12. After David has committed adultery and murder. You remember what happens? Nathan the prophet comes to David. He tells David a story about a rich man who took a poor man's only lamb for himself. And David hears the story and he's outraged. Demands justice and says, who who is this man that I can prosecute him? And Nathan just pulls the rug right out from under him and says, you are the man. It's you, David. You're the one who's guilty. And that's what Jesus does here. Jesus sets them up. He has the crowd feeling good about themselves, at least some of them. And then he just rips the rug right out from under them. He's got the entire crowd's attention. Most of all the men who think of themselves as law keepers. And then he gives a shocking example. Verse 21 says this, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. 
and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Okay, so we've heard that too. What is that? That's the sixth commandment, right? It's also a very basic commandment. It's easy to remember. It's easy to keep, right? In fact, the vast majority of people on the earth will live their entire lives and never break this commandment, right? And that's probably why Jesus chose it for his first example. Almost no one believes they're guilty of breaking the sixth commandment. Verse 22. But I say to you, I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus teaches that anger breaks the sixth commandment. I mean, that's what he's saying, right? And by teaching this, Jesus breaks everyone's understanding of the sixth commandment. And you could hear a pin drop in this crowd. Because no one listening to Jesus believed they were guilty of committing murder. Right? And yet Jesus teaches them that they are all guilty of breaking the easiest commandment to keep in their view. How is that possible? And hopefully you're asking this question too, because surely there's a big difference between being angry with someone and killing them, right? Right? Consequentially, of course there is. But it may help if, um, if I give this verse some context. Now remember, Jesus is speaking to real people, and there are several instances in the Gospels when Jesus actually knows what people are thinking and feeling and they don't even say it, but he speaks to them directly, right? There's several instances where that happens. Just moments before verse 23, Jesus mentioned the scribes and the Pharisees by name. He publicly embarrassed them in front of a crowd of people claiming that their righteousness was not good enough for God. Do you think maybe some of them were angry with Jesus? you think some of them might even have been uttering or muttering some insults kind of under their breath? Who does this guy think he is? He's a rabbi. Right? What happens inside of us when we become angry with another person? There's an impulse that rises up. There's a, a reaction to feeling offended. Now, side note, I know there's such a thing in the Bible as righteous anger, and Jesus even experienced it, right? That's also another 30-minute discussion that we can have if you want to talk about that. That's not what Jesus is talking about, but... The kind of anger that you and I are most familiar with, which is the sinful kind, right? 
Um, what happens in us, there's this impulse that rises up, a reaction to feeling offended. And the other person becomes an object of contempt. And what I mean by that is that they become less valuable to us. When we're angry with someone, we start to view them differently than we did before. And the Bible would call it contempt. I would say that's just that means that they're less valuable to me now, right? And I may even try to say or do something to the other person to intentionally devalue them. I'm using my words to devalue them, my actions. That's why we call people names, right? You go back all the way to middle school, right? You start calling people names. Why? Because you want to feel better than them. You want them to look worse than you, right? This is why we speak insults. This is why we call names. Anger, resentment, frustration. They lead to hate. They lead to contempt. The other person becomes a villain. And we may try to damage their character. We may even begin to wish that they didn't exist. And I'll be honest and tell you, I felt that at times about some people. And what Jesus teaches is that all of that comes from the same place. It all comes from the same place. Any of our efforts to devalue another human being, according to Jesus, qualifies as a breaking of the sixth commandment. Murder, of course, is the ultimate way to devalue another human being, right? That's the ultimate way to do it. But according to Jesus, insulting someone is actually in the same neighborhood comes from the same place in the heart. This concept of value, incidentally, is why Christians have historically and continue to oppose abortion. Abortion is absolutely a violation of the Sixth Commandment. Because someone is saying that overall, it's better for me if that human life doesn't exist. It is a devaluation of life. My life and how I want to live is more valuable than this life. I'm going to be an equal opportunity offender. Okay, This is also why, why Christians should oppose the neglect of orphans or the poor, or the sick, or the hungry, or the homeless. The reasons that people ignore the needs of other human beings who have value, who are made in the image of God, who were put on this earth for a purpose. We ignore those people's needs because of a judgment that we make that they are less valuable than we are. That they are not worth my time or my effort or my resources. My own needs are more important to me than my neighbor's needs. And some of y'all are thinking, okay, you're getting off topic, Mike. That's not what Jesus is talking about. I'm going to try to prove to you that it is. 
You see, it's possible that some of the things that I said just now, one or the other or both, made some of you a little angry with me. But that's exactly the sort of response that Jesus expected from his sermon. Is it possible that we have misjudged ourselves? That we think we are justified in our hearts for the way we think and feel about certain issues? I'm not guilty of devaluing other people. That's the other political party. It's not me. But is it possible that we have misjudged ourselves? Is it possible that we are worse than we think we are? That's the point. That's the point of the sermon. All the ways that we choose to devalue another human being, whatever it is, whatever it looks like, all of it makes us guilty of breaking the sixth commandment, according to Jesus. I'm going to back myself up here with the Westminster Larger Catechism. This will matter to some of you, it won't to others, but just bear with me. Okay, the, the Westminster Larger Catechism agrees with this assessment of what Jesus is teaching because it says, stating that the Sixth Commandment requires, number one, charitable thoughts, love, compassion, meekness, gentleness, kindness, peaceable, mild, and courteous speeches and behavior, forbearance, readiness to be reconciled, patient bearing and forgiving of injuries, requiting good for evil, comforting and succoring the distressed, protecting and defending the innocent. Those things are required by a commandment that says thou shalt not murder. Besides murder, the sixth commandment actually forbids, according to our standards, sinful anger, hatred, envy, desire of revenge, all excessive passions, distracting cares, Immoderate use of meat, drink, labor, and recreations. Isn't that interesting? Why? Because it devalues a human being, even yourself. Provoking words, oppression, quarreling, striking, and wounding. And I believe all of that fits very well with what Jesus is teaching in Matthew 5. And now he goes on to give a couple of examples. Look at what he says next, verse 23. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, Jesus says, and there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Now notice that Jesus does not say, if you have something against your brother. That's not what he says. Instead he says, if your brother has something against you. Now think about that. That's kind of a big shift from the way that we normally think, even as Christians, right? If you know that someone is angry with you, Jesus thinks that you have a responsibility to deal with it. And notice that he doesn't, he doesn't qualify it. It doesn't matter if the other person's anger is justified or not. I may be innocent of whatever they think I did. I may have done nothing wrong. But if I'm aware, if I know there's tension, 
if I know that you have a problem with me, Jesus is saying that I have a responsibility before God to do something about it. In other words, according to Jesus, personal reconciliation is also at the heart of the sixth commandment. Not only am I forbidden from devaluing my brother or sister, I also have a responsibility before Jesus to pursue peace. To go in the other direction. In fact, it is more important to Jesus that we reconcile with other people than if we go to church. He's saying, don't come to worship at my altar until you get this right. This is more important to me. That's what he says. I'm not making this up. Right? And then, as if that's not hard enough, he takes it a step further. Verse 25, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Wow. Okay, so in other words, Jesus says, work it out quickly while you have the chance. The Apostle Paul says something very similar in Romans 12 verse 18. He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And so by now, hopefully, everyone in his audience, if they're listening, should feel offended. He's saying that refusing to live this kind of peaceable life makes all of them and all of us commandment breakers worthy of hell. He used that word before I did. Jesus says, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. In other words, no mercy for you. Not even a penny. Great sermon, right? <laughs> really warms the heart, right? It's like chicken soup for the soul stuff, right? Just kidding. What is Jesus trying to do? <clears throat> Think back to the Beatitudes. First words out of his mouth. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom. Jesus is trying to show us our own spiritual bankruptcy. Even the ones who think that we're doing a good job. I think that's his goal. Jesus began the sermon with a focus on the heart, right? We said that poor in spirit was a, a necessary precondition for repentance and faith, which is the foundation of, of what we're doing here. This is what Christianity is about, repentance and faith. 
And you can't have those things unless you are poor in spirit. It is a necessary precondition. And now Jesus teaches us that sin also has necessary preconditions. Anger leads to contempt, leads to murder. And you may never go that far with it in this lifetime, God forbid. And yet it comes from the same place in the heart. That's where it begins. You see, Jesus is saying that keeping the law is not so simple as keeping a watered-down checklist of do's and don'ts that we're comfortable with. This is not choose your own religion, right? Let me figure out what I can do and call it righteous and God is good with me and I'll be in heaven. That is not how it works. The law exposes and judges the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. God is not satisfied with the life that any single person in this room is trying to offer Him, if not for Jesus. None of us have lived a life worthy of God. Not one person. Except for Him. But you see, after a few short years of ministry, Jesus demonstrated what I'm going to call perfect fulfillment of the sixth commandment by going to the cross. Jesus was wrongly accused. He was condemned. Others hurled insults at Him. They they held Him in contempt. And ultimately, they crucified Him. And Jesus had the absolute right to respond to His accusers in righteous anger. He could have brought the wrath of God down on their heads for what they were doing to the perfect Son of the Most High God. Peter writes, When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And what did Jesus say to the Father while he was suffering on the cross? He muttered a prayer. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. You see, guys, Jesus raised the standard of the law far beyond anything that we could ever hope to keep. Far beyond what the experts of the law thought they could handle. He leveled the playing field. He humbles us. He empties us. And as Peter continues in that same passage, he himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray.
gracious Father, if we're honest with ourselves, we search our hearts. The truth is that every one of us is a sixth commandment breaker. Some of us are dealing with a considerable amount of anger towards other people, and some of that may be for reasons that they were not our fault. Things happened to us. People hurt us. And now we're just angry. We're angry at everybody, everything, and, and you even. Father, I pray that you would expose that anger for what it is that we, in many ways, are devaluing ourselves even as we hold contempt for other people that were made in your image. Father, I pray that the, the, the love and the grace of Jesus Christ would soften our hearts, expose that tendency, and restore us. Father, lead us to repentance for these things. Help us to have faith in You. Father, continue working Your goodwill in our lives and help us to be people of peace. Humble and empty before You and before others. Not quick to judge. Not quick to hurl insults, but quick to listen. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.